so yeah. we can. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Second Chance Stories of Young Writers. We're your hosts, Calista Lynn, Sophia Luisi, and Akshay Kastri. And today we've got an incredible guest to share with you guys. We're thrilled to introduce you to someone who's not only a professor, author, advocate, and motivational speaker, but also a powerhouse in the world of corrections. Please welcome Connie Lane. <laughs> so, hi, Connie. I just wanted to start off by saying thank you so much for coming on to our podcast as our first guest speaker. We are so happy that we get to hear from you today. Well, I mean, it's great to be here. I mean, I love you guys' energy, and I'm already excited about stories of young offenders as I do some work in that space. Um, so I'm looking forward to the dialogue. Um, so Connie, let's start from the beginning. Could you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. So um, I started my correctional journey back in 2000 on Rikers Island. Um, I started out as a discharge planner. Um, I was promoted within a couple of months to health services manager where we essentially provided um, outreach services or transitional services to um, mentally ill uh, individuals. At the time, that's what the program, it was a court-ordered program. Um, after about 10 years or so of being there, um, I transitioned into the space of domestic violence. So I was a shelter director for some time under Safe Horizon. Um, I started working as a residential director simultaneously. I don't know how I did it, but I started working as a residential director um, for the Institute for Community Living. And then I was recruited to the Connecticut Department of Corrections where I serve as a prison health services administrator for another five or six years. And then when I kind of transitioned out the industry a little bit, not much, um, I created the Civilian Corrections Academy, where we provide training to non-uniform staff who work in the correctional environment, um, really just trying to infuse um, some soft skills, some, some of everything that would be required as a non-uniform staff who would go into the environment to work, whether they're working with youthful offenders or working with adults or mentally ill individuals. Anytime you're working with a marginalized population, um, it's important that you have some requisite training before you engage. That's amazing to hear about and your story is amazing so far, but let's talk about the process. Can you give our listeners an, like, an overview of your journey from your days of health service manager on Rikers Island specifically to the amazing roles you have today like how was it working at Rikers and is it as rough as it as it's portrayed so Rikers I think has its ups and downs I think depending on which facility you work in it can be tougher than others um I was in OBCC which is the Otis Bantam Correctional Facility um Correctional Center I guess it was called at the time um where they had the bing so we had some pretty tough individuals who were in administration, administrative segregation during that time. And I know structurally some things have changed and there's been a lot of good work that they've been doing on the island to sort of make it safer for staff. 
Um, but of course, there is no shortage of stories of staff who had been attacked or there had been some sort of violent exchange between them and the offender population. And that doesn't, um, that's not just, you know, officer staff, like custodial staff, but that's also to non-uniform staff who work there. Um, I do believe that there is a lot of intervention in place to try to prevent or to mitigate some of the risk associated with working there. Um, a lot of effort and I guess initiative has been put towards providing mental health treatment to the population just for the purposes of stabilizing the population and hopefully stabilizing the safety and security concerns that are raised in the facilities. Um, certainly there's a lot of effort to bring in outside services like support services so that the population has things to do that are productive during their time. And just so that folks are clear, if you are on Rikers Island, you are either sentenced to one year or less, or you have been, um, you're going back and forth to court. So you may be a pretrial individual or you may have already been sentenced on one case, but you're still going back and forth to another on another case, which is why you would still be on Rikers Island. So um, I think a lot of times people don't understand just how much work and effort is done in order to ensure that the population does have access to care, access to programming, access to all the stuff that they would need to have access to in order to be productive. Um, it, it, there is just so much to get into, I think, that sometimes you have those who are looking to manipulate the system or they're unable to um, get focused and do the right thing. And so, you know, I think a lot of the controversial topics that, you know, folks kind of focus in on happens when folks aren't compliant with treatment plans or not compliant with care or not compliant with whatever um, is being put in place to sort of help them prepare for transition back into the community. Uh, that's very, that's just mind blowing. I mean, like I, I'm kind of like speechless on what to say because like, I'm just really inspired by your passion for this. And I, it's like how, how do you like balance being like a professor author advocate and just have so many passions and skills with you could you share a little more about that sure so um the exciting thing about this is that like there's never any shortage of something to do right like there is there is always something happening in facility with the population or even with the staff and you know, the balance side is when you feel so passionate about something, it doesn't really feel like you're doing work, right? It's just kind of something else that I'm doing to kind of advance the mission, right? And the, the mission is how do we help to sort of insert positive change, right? Like things change all the time and you have some that may be resistant to change for various reasons, right? Um, most of the time custodial staff and, and just staff in general are open to change, but it's the implementation of that change, right? How is this presented? Were they involved in the change process? You know, um, did anyone speak to those who sort of are the boots on the ground to make sure they 
that whatever they're trying to implement is going to work, right? So for me, it is how do I stay active and engaged in a space where I'm very passionate? Um, how do I serve as a resource? And all the years that I've spent in the environment and working with the population and working with, you know, um, the staff, like how do we create something that sort of helps facilitate that change, helps facilitate the evolution of corrections. Um, I do believe that there are many people who want to see the corrections um, industry move in a positive direction. I think when now that we're transitioning into this rehabilitation model of corrections, that people are hopeful that that change is happening and it's happening in a positive way. Um, I think for me too, it is identifying a problem. Like, so sometimes you can't help it. Like if you're in the, in the system and you're kind of working through things, like I think each time you find a solution, there's kind of something else that kind of pops up that, oh, well, we could do better with this. Or maybe if we did this a little different. So I think all too often, we think that the ability to innovate in corrections isn't possible, but it is. So yes, it is sort of, the system is inherently very procedural heavy, like policy procedure, that type of stuff. But at the end of the day, I think the more we learn, the more we're able to figure out sort of how can we do this better? So right now I'm a doctoral student. And so what I'm going for is organizational leadership. And so when we look at ways that we can examine a, a culture and what are those barriers to us making change, I think that's where we begin to really see that, you know what, there, there are things we could be doing differently. There are things that we could be doing better that are still within the policies, the procedures, and the administrative directives that essentially govern um, the way we operate behind the wall. But I mean, for me, it, it really is a, a space where I haven't felt like I'm doing work. It really does feel like there is this calling for me to be present, to use my gifts and all the things that I've learned and on this journey to help other people to get into a better space. You know, as a discharge planner, that was probably one of the most rewarding things that I did because helping an offender transition back into the community, knowing that I've secured resources for that person, they're not going to be homeless, they're going to have their ID, like all of those things that present as barriers once they return to society. Like if I can somehow prevent that from being a reason why they're not successful, to me, that's the win. And I think it's the same thing with everything else that I've done, you know, whether it's the Civilian Corrections Academy, where I have staff who are not getting hurt because they have greater insights into the environment. For me, that's a win. When I get to hear, hey, Connie, you know what, if I didn't know this, I wouldn't have been able to do this thing in the facility. That's a win for me. And it's like, one one person at a time, however that difference shows up, it, I'm just glad to be able to make it. I think the wins are definitely probably exciting and it sounds really exciting. Um, it's really interesting and intriguing how you seamlessly balance your roles as a professor, author, and advocate. But to shift forward, could you elaborate on the valuable lessons you've drawn and applied from your extensive experience in corrections and the environment in general? And I guess I just want to add on to that question. Like, 
So at this stage, you know, being so experienced, you've helped so many people. And, you know, with the passion that you have, I guess, like, when throughout, you know, your career, or life, I guess, did you realize, oh, like, we, we have to change, we have to do something different, this has to be reformed? Yeah, so, um, all right, so there's a twofold question. <laughs> uh, so, the first fold of it is really just there's a point in your career when you have to acknowledge that what you're there for is greater than you. And so um, for me, the greater than me is when I'm walking down the corridor and I see someone who was just there on Friday and he was released, right? But you're back on Monday, right? Like something is broken that you're back again right like and so it had become over the years figuring out like what was what is broken right like what is the thing that would lead someone to recidivate right like and we know there are so many social issues out in the communities that you know oftentimes the population is unable to navigate and so unfortunately in the role previously, there wasn't sort of this um, community support available to the population. So like, so say for example, they find themselves in a crisis when they're in a community, they might not necessarily have someone who can help them make the decision, like, what should I do, right? Like, I think, yes, in all actuality, they should be able to have good judgment and make these great decisions. But we also have to recognize that some of these folks are mentally ill. Some of them are compromised in other ways that prevent them from making sort of those good judgment calls. So I think when we're able to provide resources to them, it, it kind of helps to kind of bring them back, right? So I think for me, identifying that there was this calling because no matter how I stepped away, so by day, I'm a senior manager for Raytheon Technologies, which is completely outside of corrections, right? So there's a separate hat that I wear where I'm dealing with military and commercial engines. And so it wasn't until I was able to step away that I could kind of see where some of these issues were, where we weren't kind of filling the gaps. Um, so that's to answer your question on that part. Uh, Sophia, can you give me um, the, the, the second part about the fast forwarding? Yes. So can you like elaborate on valuable lessons that you've applied from your experience in corrections and just the environment in general? Absolutely. So um, one thing that I could say is a valuable lesson is that you cannot allow fear to prevent you from doing the things that you need or want to do, right? Like, so I feel like when I first stepped into corrections, I was very quiet. I was soft-spoken. I wasn't very, like, I was just there to do a job and I wanted to go home. And it's not really the environment where you could be quiet, Right. So like I almost feel like I found my voice in corrections 
where, you know, here it is, you have an offender saying something to you that they shouldn't say. You know, I had more seasoned officers that would say, hey, Connie, come here, let me talk to you a minute. And it's like, why? What happened? Well, why didn't you stop that inmate from saying what he said? Or why didn't you do something? And I'm like, what am I supposed to do? Right. So it's almost like that sort of coming of age where you find your voice, you figure out how to assert yourself. And then when you step out of this environment where there's this constant threat of violence, right? It, it may not always happen, but it's there. And you learn how to survive. You learn situational awareness. You'll learn all these things that are transferable in life, right? Like how do you manage difficult personalities? You have tons of them that you engage with from day to day in a facility. And now when I step into the corporate world, it's kind of like, uh, that's not really an emergency. Like it, it, it really just helps you keep in perspective those things that are truly urgent and emergent versus those things that are not. And how do you have difficult conversations? I've had plenty of difficult conversations, whether it be with the inmates, with their attorneys, with their families who are calling hostile, like whoever it is, you learn to have those conversations and you don't shy away from them. So for me, I think a lot of those lessons are you're faced with a situation where you might feel uncomfortable, right? But you also know that you have the tools you need to navigate the conversation. You know, because sometimes you don't know necessarily what you don't know, right? But do I have certain tools in place so that I can manage whatever situation presents itself. And I think those are some of the lessons that I brought out of corrections that kind of put me in this space where I'm not fearless to walk through the door. I'm not, I'm not well, fearful to walk through the door. I'm not fearful to sit at the table, right? A lot of times people go into meetings, they wanna sit in the back against the wall. They don't wanna be part of the conversation. And in corrections, I've learned to, yes, you step up, you speak up, you you go to the table because your voice is required there. A lot of times we feel that our voices are optional. And I feel that in this space where I have all of this experience and this knowledge and the insights that me being at the table isn't optional, it's a requirement of myself. And so I think as, as you transition through and you take the lessons you learn from the environment, I learned how to advocate, right? Like how do you identify those win-win situations? And sometimes there isn't always a trade-off, right? Sometimes it's just the right thing to do, whether it's a trade-off or not, right? And identifying ways to ensure that in, in this advocacy that I'm looking at it from multiple perspectives, so coming from corrections, it's really made me very objective in my approach to situations and to problems that are presented, you know, and really open the door to what are all the other things that I could be doing with these skills that I've acquired. That's, I have no words to say. That's really commendable, Connie. It's, it's awesome how you've helped so many civilian and correctional people in both these industries. And that's really awesome. But can you share the experiences or specific moments that shared or sparked this passion within you? And also, can you also share one instance really that you knew you changed someone else's life? So a specific story with a specific incarcerated individual or something that you've worked in 
in the Rikers Island and you walked out knowing, oh, I just changed this person's life. Can you share that? Sure. So I remember there was an instance where there was a guy who he was preparing for release. We had done all these things to get him ready. And he was sitting at my desk and he's like, Miss Connie, I can't, I can't leave. And I said, what do you mean you can't leave? Like you go home, you go home in a couple of days. And he was like, Miss Connie, so this is how this is dated, right? So you guys don't judge me. <laughs> um, but he says, Miss Connie, this, they don't have tokens anymore. They have Metro cards. I don't know how to use a Metro card, right? And I'm thinking to myself, wow, like this is really a concern, right? And so I remembered bringing in a Metro card like the next day, I was like, listen, that shouldn't be a reason why you don't want to go home, right? Like there's so many things that are go that have changed in the world since he was last free, right? And so the Metro card was this thing he was just so hung up on, like, because he was thinking transportation, how am I going to get around? So he, I bring in the Metro card the next day and I'm like, all right, this is the Metro card. You, this, I'm, I'm, I'm showing him, this is where, you know, the, the stripe is, you swipe it. I was like, it is pretty self-explanatory. This is not a reason to not go home. Right. And then it was, um, something about not having a place to stay. Now we had already set up for a place to stay, but he wanted to be able to stay with a family member. And at the time it wasn't possible. And so it was kind of the reinforcing, you had a place to stay. He wanted to go to school. So I was like, here are all these tools to kind of get him back on the right path and to just sort of quell all of these anxious feelings he was having about being released. And what we know is like, that's like that golden hour, like when they're about to be released and they start doubting or they start getting scared or whatever, like chances that that person's going to go out and reoffend are pretty significant, right? And so to have given him all the stuff he needed to not come back was just like everything for me. And so the moment he left, I remember saying like, you know, I, I wish you all the best. And just so you guys know, like there was no such thing then of you giving an offender the office phone number because that is seen as undue familiarity. And so once an inmate leaves, like they shouldn't be in contact with a staff person again, they should be seeking support outside because we didn't offer services outside of Rikers Island. So um, I remember thinking, oh man, I hope this guy doesn't come back. And I think I was there for another five years or so before I ever saw him come back. And I was like, wait a minute. I know, I know, what are you doing here? And he was there because he had like a, he said he, I don't think he had a dirty urine or something. So he was going out on parole and I guess when, or probation and he must've had to get drug tested and he had a dirty urine and they violated him and sent him back. And he was only going to be there for like a couple of weeks or something like that. But the fact that he didn't commit a new crime to me was like, oh, this is great. The fact that he wasn't back in two weeks and it was like almost five years before he came back, I was like, wow, you know, you, you begin to see that the work and the effort that you put in is all worthwhile, even though you may not see the outcome right away. Or even when, you know, I had a young person 
who just like, I can't read. I'm not going to go to school. He was non-compliant with everything and anything related to education. And I remember talking to him and he's like, you know, Miss Connie, you know, you the one with the job, you know? And I'm like, yeah, I might be the one with the job, but you could be the one with the job also. And, but, but what that requires is for you to at minimum have a high school diploma, you know? And, and like he would, he would show me his papers. Like he would be walking towards the school and being able to know that I could motivate someone to actually go to school and see the outcome, right? Here it is, you know, a year later, he's going through graduation. To me, that's where the win is, that you can see the work you're doing is not in vain. Your advocacy for these people is so commendable and so like mind-blowing. And it's like hard to put it into words how, we can just tell how good of a person you are and how you care about this. And it it's so cool to see other people like care so much about this world. Um, and actually and- I'd like to add on to that. Sorry about that. Um, so this instance is actually really, I guess, intriguing because I feel like a lot of people's stories re- really aren't heard. And I just wanted to thank you for the opportunity to tell us that because I feel like this is one step towards having everyone's voice heard, especially the formerly incarcerated, as, you know, so, like there's so much stigma surrounding them that, you know, many times people don't want to listen to what they have to say or people fear what they have to say. Um, but, you know, like with your perspective, I think that really changes things. So honestly, that sounds amazing. Um, good luck with everything. And yeah. honestly, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, and sharing your insights and perspectives. Um, you know, I think I think your journey really exemplifies resilience and dedication, and we're truly honored to have had you as a guest on A Second Chance Stories of Young Offenders. Um, do you have any last me- messages you would like to share with our listeners? Um, I would just like to say, you know, there's so much going on in the world of corrections, and this population does need support. Right. Like, I mean, we talk a lot about prison reform and all the things that we could do differently. But, you know, a lot of times we don't always see the investment. We think that the investment always has to be a financial investment coming from, you know, the broader government. But really, it is an investment of the time and effort of the people who work with this population day in and day out. That is the all the correctional professionals who are there supporting this population. Unfortunately, there's this narrative that no one cares. And there's more people who care than not. And if there's anything at all that I would want you all to take away from this is that there are really great people doing amazing work to try to help this population successfully transition back into the community to have successful lives. And unfortunately, we don't always hear the stories of the people who are working really hard to make that happen, who are supporting them, who are you know, going above and beyond to make sure that they don't come back. So if there are good news stories out there, you know, I think unfortunately we got to like dig for the good news stories because it's the bad news stories that hit the newspaper, right? It's or the front screen of whatever social platform. It's never the good stuff that someone's doing. So I appreciate being able to be on the platform to highlight that there are really great people out there working to help this population be successful once they get back into the community. 
Great. Thank you so much for that. Um, to the listeners, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of A Second Chance Stories of Young Offenders. Um, until next time, remember that your story is still being written and that there's always hope for a brighter future. See you guys next time.